All right, so here's the deal this morning. We are going to start global and work our way local. Sound good? We're going to start modern and work our way back to ancient. All right, so let's start global. You are here, right there. I know you know this. Actually, you're not here. You're on the other side of here right now, but still. You are here, and let's zoom in a little bit. Anybody see your home country on this? We zoomed in a little bit. See your home country? Cool. Anybody's home country get cut off? It was not a personal thing. Okay, sorry. Sorry. If your home country got cut off, let's zoom in just a little bit more. This is the area of the world we are talking about. And if you got on a plane today from Toronto and you landed in Tel Aviv, Israel, you could rent a car or get in a cab and drive north, northeast for about an hour and 45 minutes. And once the Mediterranean Sea disappeared behind you, the next body of water that you would see would be Lake Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you hit the Sea of Galilee, you're going to need to go right or left because if you keep going straight, you're going to ruin the rental car. So if you went left and north around the north-northwest end of the Sea of Galilee, you'd come to a road called Route 87. Now, Route 87 is kind of an out-of-the-way road. It would feel like you're driving through cottage country a little bit. There's really not much there. But along Route 87 are the ancient ruins of a village called Capernaum. Capernaum was a sleepy little fishing village in the first century, about 1,500 inhabitants. Uh, to say that Capernaum was insignificant on a global scale is quite the understatement. Capernaum was insignificant even on a local scale. So when archaeologists began to excavate Capernaum, the ancient ruins of Capernaum, and found this 5th century Byzantine church, this octagonal-shaped church, this is the ruins of that church, they knew that they had something special on their hands. Why? One, they knew the biblical significance of Capernaum. Capernaum is mentioned in the Bible. Two, the archaeologists also knew that Christians of the first century weren't like Christians today when it comes to building churches. You know, we find some land or we find an old, you know, building or something. We just plop a church down. Early Christians didn't do that. They only built churches on spaces and in places that were sacred to them that were meaningful to them for some reason. So when archaeologists found the ruins of this 5th century church, they knew, again, that they had something special on their hands, so they began to dig. And underneath the 5th century church, they found, get this, a 4th century church. And then under the 4th century church, they found a 1st century home. Now, the home was peculiar for two reasons. One is, instead of finding, like, normal utensils that a family would use, like pots and pans and spatulas and things like that, they didn't have that stuff, but you know what I mean, normal utensils that a family would use, they found large jugs for oil or large jugs for water, water which led them to believe that this home was converted into a corporate gathering space rather than used as a home. The other thing that they found that was intriguing was graffiti scribbled on the walls. Not like, you know, somebody spray paints by a train track graffiti, but people were scrawling things in the walls. And some of the phrases that they found on the walls were phrases like, Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant. Or Christ, have mercy. And those graffiti were often accompanied by images that were etched into the wall as well. A couple of times there was a cross. And on one particular occasion... The graffiti was accompanied by the etching of a boat. 
Multiple graffiti on the wall of this first century home included a single name. That name was the name of Peter. So historians have concluded, and I know that cases of biblical archaeology are never black and white. They're never cut and dry. They're 2,000 years ago. But historians have concluded this, that a man named Peter owned that home. Peter was a follower of Jesus, and he liked boats. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for telling us what all those things mean. Yes, it's that Peter. Yes, it's the Peter who was once a fisherman called out of his life of catching fish into a life of catching men who became a follower of Jesus. And once Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, they converted Peter's home in Capernaum to a corporate gathering space for Christians and began to build church after church after church on top of it. So right between the ruins of the synagogue on the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee, there's the ruins of a church, and underneath is the home of St. Peter. Now, why does this matter? It matters because in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, where we're, we're going we're to be today, Mark writes this, and when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. Now, the Bible tells us that the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a home. So his home in Capernaum would have been Peter's home. So understand that the account that we are about to read really happened in a real time and place in history. This is not Game of Thrones, okay? It's not like a magical place called Narnia that somebody made up. You can go see today, and I just gave you very specific directions, by the way, the church that sits on top of this home where this took place. So let's read the narrative, Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, that's okay. The Bible uh, passage is always up here on the screen. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with your neighbor if they're nice. And we're going to read this account from Mark chapter 2. Look up here on the screen. Mark, by the way, his best friend was Peter, so he gets all his information from this eyewitness Peter living in this home in Capernaum. Mark writes this, and when he, again that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Love that. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Jesus is putting himself in the place of God. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And in the, in the minds of these religious leaders, you can just see the hamster running, right? Hamster on the wheel. Oh, which, one's, which one's easier? Which one's easier? Keep reading. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, 
and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, many of you know that we are on our final week of a series called For the City. As a church, our goal this year is to seek the welfare of this great city. As Drake would say, turn the six upside down, so now it's a nine, okay? Transform the city. Do good for the city. And you may be wondering, what in the world does Mark chapter 2 have to do with the city? Well, listen, you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? And then he fled violence from his province in Galilee to Egypt. Many of you have fled violence in your home countries as refugees as well, just like Jesus did. And when the violence had kind of transpired and, and, and it was done, Jesus came back and he spent his boyhood and adolescence and even much of his adulthood in a city called Nazareth. But when it was time to launch his public ministry at about 30 years old, it was time to start teaching and preaching and doing miracles, he did so in a city called Capernaum. It was Peter's city. It was Matthew's city. It was Andrew's city. And so when Matthew writes about this very same account, Jesus healing a paralytic, look how Matthew begins his account of Jesus healing the paralytic. And getting into the boat, he crossed over the Sea of Galilee and came to his own, say it with me, city. So this tale of, of this story, this true account of Jesus healing a paralytic, it's not just a miracle story. It's not just instructive for us. It's not just, oh, neat, this is really great. This is Jesus implementing his plan for city transformation. This is Jesus coming into his own city, a city that he loved, a city that Peter loved and Andrew loved and Matthew loved. This is their hometown. And beginning to inaugurate a ministry and initiate a plan for city transformation. So that's our goal this year, is Bayview Glen Church. So let's learn from the master, shall we? Mark, in his account, gives us a lot of detail and helps us to really shape and understand what it is that Jesus is doing when it comes to implementing his plan for city transformation. So we're going to pick it up in verse 2. We already know where we're at. We're in Peter's home in Capernaum. And it says, many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, that's Jesus, was preaching the word to them. Now, uh, an early first century Galilean home typically could fit about 50 people. Like if you packed them in like sardines, it could fit about 50 people. A couple of courtyards, some bedrooms surrounding those courtyards. And this home that archaeologists uncovered was really no different. It was a little bit bigger. So let's say you could fit about 75 people jammed in. But look what Mark says to us. He says that many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So there are people sitting and, and standing on shoulders and people pouring out into the courtyard. They're just jammed in there together. So let's conservatively say that there's like 150 people here. But remember, Capernaum is a village of about 1,500. That's 10% of Capernaum's population. And what are they doing there? They're listening to Jesus preach the word. They just came to hear him talk. Now imagine this. What if 10% of the city of Toronto was jammed in somewhere together. Everybody in a field up in Barrie or something, or everybody you know, pouring out of the Air Canada Center just to hear Jesus talk. Now that's the beginning of city transformation, if you ask me. Keep reading, verse three. And they came, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. 
Now, because Mark actually calls this guy a paralytic, he identifies him as a paralytic, understand that this man was likely paralyzed from the time he was a little bitty. He's been paralyzed all his life. And he's likely spent the entirety of his life on a mat, face down, begging for people to be gracious to him. Begging for just a couple of dollars of change or begging for food or begging for something because he would have been an outcast in that society. He would have been ostracized in that society. He wouldn't have been able to work. And four men see this paralytic and they probably have compassion on him. We can assume that from the text. And they think, you know what? I think this Jesus guy could probably do something about this. I think this Jesus guy could probably intervene. I think this Jesus guy could probably help you. So picture it with me. These four men each grab a corner of the mat and they begin to march this man to the feet of Jesus. Now, if you had to carry someone to church, would you be late or early? Late. So they were late just like many of you are to church. And they had a good excuse, just like many of you do not. So look what happens when they're late. Keep reading. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof. See, they're having a tough time finding a seat, just like some of you did because you were late. (laughs) Okay. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, this is my favorite part of the story. Because we're a lot like these four men. We've got friends that are broken. We've got friends that are hurting. We've got friends that are struggling. We've got friends that feel ostracized and don't feel valued. And there's something in our hearts that says, I think this Jesus guy could do something about it. I think God might be able to intervene here. I think just, I don't know how he does it. I don't know what he's doing. I, I did, but I just know he could do something. And then we try to get our friends to the feet of Jesus, and we encounter challenges sometimes. We encounter hurdles sometimes. Sometimes there are too many people here, and we can't jam them in to hear from Jesus. And we give up quickly, don't we, sometimes? I'm grateful that these four men did not give up on their friend. I'm grateful that they stepped out in courageous faith. And so when they came to Peter's house and they couldn't fit him in, they didn't just look at him and say, you know, I'm sorry, we tried. I mean, we tried to get you to the feet of Jesus. We carried you all the way here, but look, we can't get to him. You see the people. We just can't jam you in. We can't, you know, part the waters and push people out of the way. We're sorry, but we tried. No, 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 no. They said, we'll find a way. So they went around the side of the house. Every first century home would have had a ladder or stairs on the side. And they crawled up the ladder or the stairs, which is a feat in and of itself because they're pulling dead weight with them, aren't they? And they get on this roof and they begin to dig. They pull back rocks and thatch and and sticks and whatever else in the mud or the dirt in first century Palestine would have turned into clay when it was rained on. So that's how they built roofs. And so they're tearing back clay just to make an opening in this roof to get their friend to the feet of Jesus because they know Jesus can do something. I've always wondered a couple of things in the passage. I've always wondered, how did Jesus respond when he started feeling chunks of roof fall down on his head you know like because he look at his friend Peter they're friends at this point right like Peter roof's caving in buddy 
you know, we got to get this fixed, slick. Jesus didn't call people slick. The other thing that I wondered is how did they decide where to dig on the roof? You know what I mean? Like, I could just see these guys kind of like. I think he's here. Start digging, you know, and they're just digging to get this man in the roof or into the room to the feet of Jesus. I wonder how the paralytic felt. This man who had been ostracized his whole life, who had been kind of marginalized in society. Someone finally took a risk for him. Someone finally counted him valuable enough. Someone finally made a sacrifice for him. And then when there were hurdles or challenges in the way, these men said, no, 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 no. We're not going to stop. We've got to get you to the feet of Jesus. I always picture the paralytic weeping as they lower him to the ground. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. In the original language in the Greek, this is a very tender term. Very tender term. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this verse is fascinating for two reasons. One is that Jesus addresses this man's inner need for forgiveness. He does not immediately address address his external need. And the expectation on the part of the paralytic certainly would have been that Jesus would heal him because Jesus had already started his healing ministry there in Capernaum. Just a few verses before, he had actually healed Peter's mother-in-law. So this guy certainly has heard the stories, certainly has an expectation that Jesus would do something about it, but Jesus addresses his inner need, his need for forgiveness. You know, it's fascinating because I find that still happens. People come to Jesus, they come to church for all kinds of different reasons. They come for life purpose, they come for wisdom, they come for direction. Sometimes they come for a date. (laughs) And Jesus moves beyond what's expected into the unexpected and addresses our deepest need, the need to have our sins washed away. Now, the other fascinating part of this verse is this one little pronoun here, there. There. Jesus saw their faith. Now, he could be including the paralytic in this pronoun, but he is certainly including more than the paralytic because it's plural and he's just one guy. Essentially, what Mark is saying is that Jesus perceived the faith of the four men. Jesus perceived that the four men trusted Jesus enough just to get their friend to his feet. They trusted him enough and they stepped out in courageous Faith, and listen, I don't want to pull something from the text that's not really there. I don't want to do violence to the text here. But understand, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is compelled by courageous faith. Jesus is compelled by courageous faith. There's something about their faith that moves Jesus to action. There's something about these men saying, I'm not going to let challenges get in the way. I'm going to step out and do something crazy and do something radical just to get my friend to the feet of Jesus. And the same goes for us today. I don't know where Jesus is calling you to have courageous faith in your life. Maybe it's standing up for him at work. Maybe it's refusing to cut corners in your business. Maybe it's simply sending a text message to a friend and saying, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you today. Maybe it's exhibiting courageous faith like these men exhibited and saying, I've got a friend who just needs to know Jesus, who just needs to meet him who just needs a touch from him. I don't know what Jesus is going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know why. All I know is that I've got to get my friend to the feet of Jesus. And these men stepped out in courageous faith, and Jesus was moved to action. Same goes for us. 
Now watch what happens. I love this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. If you don't know who the scribes are, that's fine. They're the religious leaders of the day. They're the church people of the day. They were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus addresses the church people. He addresses the judgy church people. Isn't it funny how we can still have judgy church people even 2,000 years later? And I could stand up here and, you know, criticize judgy church people and confront judgy church people and all that stuff. I'd just rather let Jesus do it, wouldn't you? I don't have to fill my time doing that. Watch what Jesus does. This is brilliant. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, like, I know what you're thinking, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. And the church people responded with, but he, yeah, got us again, right? And so Jesus says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happens? He got up, he rolled up his mat, and he went home. Talk about the ultimate mic drop on Jesus' part, right? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your mat, and go home? Rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Boom, and I'm out. I love that. He like totally silences the judgy church people. I think that's fantastic. I think Jesus is really funny in that way. That might just be me. I got to find where we are in the text here. Verse 9? No. Verse 10? No. Verse 11? Wow. We are already a ways through this. Look at that. Here's the most important part. What's just happened in Peter's house? In Peter's living room now, he saw a man, lame from birth, quadriplegic, paraplegic, something, drug in by his friends. They tore a hole in his roof. I always wonder if Peter, after the fact, was like, hey, you know what? You just healed a guy who was paralyzed from birth. Can you do something about the roof? Like, that can't be that hard, right? It's just me. It's just me thinking. He just watched Jesus say, rise, take up your mat, and go home. And the man picks up his mat and goes home. No wonder the early church built church after church after church on this spot right here. No wonder it was special to them. No wonder it was sacred to them because the transformation of their city and subsequently the world began right here in this moment. Have you ever had something happen at your house that's like totally memorable? that you can close your eyes and you can picture an image or you can play back the video of something that happened in your home, just the positive things now, just think about the positive things, that's like imprinted on your brain, like you will never forget it. Amy and I moved from Phoenix and we got engaged in a home that she was living in with roommates and then once we got married, we moved into the home and kicked the roommates out. But we always kind of had this place in our house, in our living room, where we got engaged. It was really special to us. We lived there for eight years. In our current home, our daughter, Kaya, has um, taken her first steps in that home. So I can close my eyes and play back that video of little Kaya in her gray sweatsuit, you know, taking her first steps. I actually have the video on my phone, so I can literally play the video back. I was listening to... Uh, friend tell a story yesterday. I called him and had him just remind me of the details here of something that happened in a home that, you know, 
was memorable, was unique, was special. My friend, Tim is his name, and another friend of mine decided one weekend at a cottage up north in the Muskoka region to put on a fireworks show. I don't know what it is about me and my friends and fireworks, but it's just something we do, okay? So there's multiple families gathered at this home, all out on the deck, lots of folks enjoying a beautiful summer night, and my friend Tim and another friend of mine who will go unnamed, his name is Christian, but he, I won't name his name, okay? And they're down by the water, and they've got multiple fireworks ready to put on a fireworks show. Now, these guys are neither licensed or good at decision making. So you know that this is not going to go somewhere good. So they light off a number of fireworks and they get to the very last firework, the grand finale. And the very last firework was called the champ. The champ. So they start yelling, the champ is here. The champ is here. And they start quoting Muhammad Ali. The champ is here. The champ is here. And they ignite the champ. And here's how the champ works. The champ has got 60 teeny tiny little fireworks in it. Not really teeny tiny. And they all go off, sub, you know, one, one after another. Consecutive fireworks. 60 of them. Well, unfortunately, the first of 60 fireworks went off. And the kick of the fireworks was so powerful that it knocked the champ over. So instead of shooting fireworks directly into the air, the champ has now laid down on the edge of the water and it's shooting fireworks directly at the patio and into the cottage where all these families are hanging out together. <laughs> My friend Tim, after the fact, said, you know what, I saved some young ladies' lives that day. Never mind, I was the source of the danger, but I saved lives that day because they are not licensed and because they're stupid. They said it was just an absolute mess. That's a memorable event in somebody's home. Aren't you, wouldn't you like to see like a video of that or something? Or like if somebody captured that on camera, that'd be great. They actually did. Look up here on the screen. <laughs> Go back. Go back one. Come on now. This is the champ going off, shooting. And if you look closely in these images, you can see people running for their lives. Can't you look on that left one? You can see people running for their lives. And this, this down here, look up here. This is my friend Tim right here, shoving people out of the way to run to safety, shoving young girls out of the way, I'm sure, is what my friend Tim was doing because he's a fantastic human being. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's, that, that's real. That really happened in somebody's house. You can take that screen down. Take that image down. Look, this is what just happened in Peter's life. Something memorable in his home, something that would change his life, something that he's like, I will never see anything like this again. We have seen extraordinary things today. The champ went off and nobody died. <laughs> or in this case, Jesus spoke life into legs that had never worked before. So remember, what we're talking about is city transformation. We're talking about city change. Understand that the city of Capernaum and subsequently the world was changed, transformed when the city saw one man's life changed. Just one guy. How do I know that? It's because of the way Mark and Luke and Matthew all end their account of this paralyzed man getting healed. Look at the way Mark ends his account. He says this. So that they were all amazed. Of course they were. They just saw a lame man walk. 
and glorified God, that's the first part of our mission statement here at Bayview Glen, and said, we never saw anything like this. Look how Matthew and Luke end their account. Matthew says, when the crowd saw it, they glorified God. Luke says, amazement seized them all. Of course it did. And they, were glor- and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Why? Because Jesus started a not-for-profit organization or implemented some new kind of financial thing? Why? Because Jesus started, you know, a a, a ministry and, and a program and had a budget? No, because four men cared about one guy and said, I am going to get him to the feet of Jesus because I know Jesus can do something. You see, city transformation begins when we start getting people to the feet of Jesus. You want to see this city change? You want to see this world change? It's it's not in organizations. It's not in planning, although that's great and positive and awesome. But city transformation begins just as we saw in Mark chapter 2, just as Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 9. The city gets changed when we start getting people to the feet of Jesus. And we encounter challenges sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith and inviting people to church. And those challenges can be in the form of fear. It can be in the form of anxiety. And we're not even talking about sharing a personal testimony with somebody. We're talking about just extending an invite to church. And it's hard, isn't it? But Jesus says, if you get them to my feet, I can do something. So step out in courageous faith this year. Just get them to the feet of Jesus. And it might not be that you literally have to pick them up and carry them here like these four men did. But it may be that. It may be that you say, hey, I'll be there in 15 minutes. You probably ought to brush your teeth or something but because I'm getting you to church today. Or, hey, I'll be there in 15 minutes and you and I are going to go to coffee and I'm just going to listen to you and pray with you. We're going to go to Jesus together because I know you're hurting and I can't do anything about it, but I know if I can get you to the feet of Jesus, he can change your life and our city and our world can be changed because of it. Step out in courageous faith and you know what? You might have to tear through a couple of roofs to do so. Not literally, but figuratively. If you get someone here to our church, please don't tear through our roof, but just use the door, okay? And understand, though, that we can't expect a paralyzed man to walk to Jesus, can we? He needs someone to carry him there. You know that we all need that sometimes? We all need to be carried to the feet of Jesus. And maybe it's not we're paralyzed physically, but we're paralyzed by fear sometimes. We're crippled by doubt sometimes. We're debilitated by broken relationships and even these interactions we've had sometimes with judgy church people. And they're like, "Uh, you know, I can't get to the feet of Jesus. I'm not going to get to the feet of Jesus. I don't want to go to the feet of Jesus. We need somebody to pick us up in prayer and walk us to the feet of Jesus. Every one of us needs this. Not just your friends who aren't here, your family members that aren't here. You and I need this on a regular basis. We need someone to pick us up and get us here. And say, I am not leaving you until we figure out how to get you to the feet of Jesus. Because he can make a change. He can make a change. My invitation to you this morning would be to think of one name. One image in your head that needs to be at the feet of Jesus today, this week, this month, this year. 
Understand that just like these four men got their friend, the paralytic, to the feet of Jesus, you may be that person's only link to God. You may be their only link. Who is God calling you to send a text message to? To pick up the phone, give them a call, to extend an invitation to coffee or dinner, to get them here to Bayview Glen. He's calling you to get somebody here to the feet of Jesus so that we can see our city and our world transformed. I've talked about a friend of mine uh, in here before. His name is Eric. He's a great guy. Um, I saw him last time I was in Scottsdale just a a couple of months ago. Eric uh, lost his dad to cancer when he was really young. His mother got remarried. She was remarried for 10 or 12 years, and his stepdad was just a fantastic human being, and Eric started to call him dad and got very close with him, and then he died in a really strange accident um, that was a result of a van malfunctioning, or, I mean, it was just a, a wacko deal. So Eric used to say that he lost two dads growing up, which he really did. He lost two dads growing up. So Eric began to deal with that loss and that brokenness and that hurting with substance abuse, uh, alcohol and, you know, all that kind of stuff initially. And eventually he got addicted to IV heroin. And for 10 years, uh, he, he just went down that rabbit hole of IV heroin. I cannot tell you how many times I have brought my friend Eric to the feet of Jesus in prayer. I picked him up and took him to breakfast because he hadn't eaten anything. I literally picked him up and put him in my car and took him to rehab multiple times. And the things that I did to get him to the feet of Jesus are, they just do not compare to what his mom did. Exhausted her financial resources. Any challenge that got in the way, any roof that got in the way, she tore through it just to get Eric to the feet of Jesus, knowing if I can get him to the feet of Jesus, Jesus can do something. So finally, on the fifth time through rehab, Eric got sober. He's married now, been sober seven years. And even when he lost his mom to cancer two years ago, he continued to walk with Jesus the best that he knew how. He's not perfect. He continues to walk with Jesus just because someone wouldn't quit on him. Just because someone didn't get derailed by challenges. They got him to the feet of Jesus. Now, the people in your life may not have that significant of an issue with addiction or heroin use or whatever. They may not be paralyzed and laying on a mat, but they need somebody to love them and value them. They need somebody to take a risk for them and sacrifice for them. They need someone to be the grace of God to them. You may be the only Jesus they ever see. And as we seek this year the welfare of our city, this is where it begins when we start getting people to the feet of Jesus. Would you just bow your head, close your eyes with me if you would. Here in a moment, we're gonna go before the Lord's table together and receive communion. But right now in this moment, I would just invite you to picture that face, picture that name, Understand, this is just about, just about loving someone well, showing them grace, sacrificing for them. 
so that we might get them before a living God who can make a change. As we prepare our hearts now for communion, we practice what's called open table here. That means you don't have to be a member here or a ministry partner here. You don't have to be a regular churchgoer to participate. So we invite you to confess any known sin before the Lord, enjoy his forgiveness, bask in his grace just for a moment as we sing. The ushers are gonna pass out elements, just a little piece of bread and a little cup Bread represents the body of Christ given for you. And the cup represents the blood of Christ shed for you. Hold those elements and we'll take them together after we sing as we remember the Lord together. Ushers, if you would come forward, let's prepare our hearts now to receive the Lord's table as Andy and the team lead us.